Two years after the vote to legalize cannabis in California, the black market is thriving in Los Angeles. Why is that? Kristen Yoder knows. She's going to tell us. She calls herself the bullshit detector of the industry, founder of strategy shop Soil to the Oil, and named by Marijuana Venture Magazine as one of the 40 under 40 to watch in the cannabis industry. Kristen has deep experience in every aspect of the business, from retail to growing to product development, testing, marketing really everything to do with cannabis and not just the business, but also the cultural, legal, and even personal aspects of cannabis. If you really want to know what's happening with weed, you're going to love this episode. So let's get to it. This is Let's Talk About Weed, the Cannaboomers podcast, CBD, microdosing, and all things related to medical cannabis for baby boomers. From San Diego, here's your host, Thomas J. So Kristen, where are you today? I am sitting in my living room in lovely Venice Beach, California. Nice. Venice is uh, renowned as kind of a crazy hotspot. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, for cannabis, for culture, and now we have over 140 tech companies in Venice alone. So it's got the, the nickname Silicon Beach now. So you have uh, a lot of experience in the cannabis industry going back to around 2005, I guess? Yes. Uh, I started right when I was 21, right after I got my doctor's recommendation for cannabis. And I went into a dispensary and was just blown away that they even had stores where you could buy weed. It was freaking amazing. So um, the next time I came back, I'm like, hey, do you need help? Like, how can I get a job here? And they did need help. And that's the beginning of the end of my over a decade of being in the cannabis industry. What condition were you treating? Uh, anxiety. I mean, to be honest, I just like to smoke cannabis and I... I was the only person I knew where to get it from was my ex-boyfriend. And so I was looking for any other way to get it. And, you know, we all have our own issues. I could say anxiety. I was an anxious person, but really I was just a fan of cannabis. So. Sure. <laughs> yeah. For some people, it just works. Um, not everybody. I mean, some people, it makes anxious. Oh, for sure. It's not for everybody. That's for yeah. sure. In the right amounts. I mean, we can all microdose nowadays too, which is sort of a, a recent understanding. And uh, Yeah. It's almost like we're going back to the old days of not that strong of cannabis. Now it's really taming, taming the beast that can be, you know, the most potent, most strongest extracts or anything like that. It's good to be able to microdose. Yeah. We may see breeding for other cannabinoids, right? Rather than just THC. Mm -hmm. Yep. From that day you walked in and then you helped out that dispensary, you've spent time in other parts of the industry, uh, learning how to grow, learning how to make extracts, all that stuff. Yeah. Right? So I was at the dispensary for five years and I followed that with two years learning how to grow cannabis indoor and outdoor under a master grower. Uh, and then I followed that with three years at one of the largest edible companies in California. And I started out doing supply chain management and then pretty much took over product development R&D immediately. Uh, and I was in charge of handling the extract and getting it tested um, with a testing lab that uh, after being at the edible company for three years, I went to work for the analytical testing lab that I had worked with at the edible company. And uh, I was with them for a year. I did project management. And um, while I was there, they came up with a terpene training kit and I would help growers come up with terpene formulated 
uh, vape cartridges up in Washington. So um, after that, I did a year of management consulting, which I really didn't like because it wasn't anything to do with cannabis, really. It was more uh, formal business documentation and boring things like that. So I am now an advisor, a strategic advisor for people, entrepreneurs, investors in the idea phase of cannabis, and I help them. Um, I do viability analysis or helping them figure out, is this something you can do? And is this something you want to do? Is this something you understand what you're getting into? That type of thing. So... Well, and it sounds like you almost created your own curriculum. I mean, you, you went through retail and growing and testing and managing projects and training. So you really have a depth and a breadth of experience in, across the industry. From the soil to the oil and oh. beyond. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very unique. Uh, I haven't met very many people that have been not just um, like a small part. I mean, I was the operations for every single sector in the industry. So having such an intimate relationship with the supply chain from start to finish, you just can't understand what this um, industry is like until you've had to put out fires at every single step along the way. And, you know, I think the best way to learn is through trauma. And I have definitely had that. The thing you always hear is, well, it's the Wild West. I mean, uh, you know, there's all kinds of CBD companies. There's legalization happens, but it's not like an overnight thing, right? It's evolving all the time. What are some of the insights you've derived from your varied experience in the industry? Uh, well, so I've been in Los Angeles for my entire career. And Los Angeles in 2005 had a few dispensaries in West Hollywood and then the dispensary that I had worked at in Venice. And that was it. And by 2006, there were like 500 dispensaries. And by 2007, a thousand. And they, it just blew up all of a sudden. There were dispensaries everywhere. So in 2006, the LA City Council created something called the Interim Control Ordinance. And you'll see in Los Angeles, a lot of dispensaries were saying, oh, we're pre-ICO. That meant that they were a dispensary that existed before the Interim Control Ordinance went into effect, which was in, I believe, June 2007. So um, having seen that, the city basically didn't choose to regulate anything. They just chose to ban everything outright. And it they failed um, very badly because the thing is, is if you're going to shut everyone down, you actually have to shut everyone down. And they didn't. They didn't enforce it at all. So it's exactly the same as right now, except now they're being forced to regulate it. But a lot of the cities in California have decided to just ignore this and have a complete ban on commercial and medical cannabis, which in what that does is it causes a black market. So then you've got before when California was um, a medical cannabis state, it, we called it the gray market because there wasn't any regulation or enforcement for the most part. But now once you get into legalization, it causes a lot more crime than it fixes because legalization is just, I mean, the first word, the first part of that word legal, it's just a, an insane amount of laws. And the more laws there are, 
the more ways to break the laws there are. And I think that what people don't realize when voting for legalization or their state is going through possible legalization and then they see the politicians continuously slacking off and putting it off and, you know, putting the vote, delaying, delay, delay. That's what always happens. It's because they have an insane amount of laws they have to put together and put into action. And it's more expensive in the beginning for these states to get their acts together than than not. Um, So I think that's one of the things with legalization that people don't quite understand is it's not the end of prohibition. It's just a different form of prohibition. So I think I hear you saying a couple things. One might be that for producers or distributors, there's a gauntlet of regulation suddenly that they have to run and it might be easier for them to not comply. And B, our laws, making laws is like making sausage. It's pretty ugly, right? Yeah. Well, I think too, um, it's the litigation aspect. So where you don't get screwed by regulations. Now we've got these lawyers that are literally putting together courses on how to litigate cannabis businesses. And so it's not even necessarily the enforcement of the state. It's being up to date on your own. I mean, the laws change all the time. A legal cannabis business must have a compliance department because that's a full-time job uh, for at least one person, if not many people to stay on top of it. And There are so many ways that you're going to have to pay either through enforcement fines or whatever if you don't have everything up to code or, you know, depending on your competitors or consumers or your employers, there are ways to get attacked on the inside um, as well. I know I'm not making this sound like a positive thing, but I don't think people understand like the complexity of legalization. It doesn't mean things get easier. <laughs> like it gets much more difficult. Let's um, bring out your your pseudonym. You're also soil to oil is a very clever way to describe your expertise, but you're also known as the bullshit detector yes. because there is so much um, bullshit going on here, right? Um, An insane amount of bullshit. And yeah. it's more for me, The most bullshit comes from consultants, (laughs) like no offense to good consultants out there, but there's no lack of consultants that you express, hey, I want to get into the cannabis industry. Everyone wants to get in the cannabis industry. Now you just hire a consultant who will help you follow your dream, whether or not your dream is realistic. And that's why I define myself as a strategic advisor and not a consultant, because I'm not here to tell you what you want to hear. I'm here to make sure that you understand exactly what you're getting into uh, from the cost to the amount of time to to every aspect. And then if you want to move forward, then I will support you in that. And if you don't, you should be really happy that you talk to me because people don't also don't know you cannot file for bankruptcy in the cannabis industry because you're in a federally illegal industry. So your mistakes Um, can stick with you. And this industry is incredibly capital intense. So you need money. And it's easy to lose a lot of money because there are a ton of people ready to take your money and tell you what you want to hear. Wow. It is the Wild West. (laughs) I mean, yes, it absolutely freaking is. Here's something interesting. Um, In the gray period, if an employee was 
pissed off at their employer, uh, which happened a lot, they could threaten the uh, threaten the employer that like, hey, I'll, I'll call the cops on you and get you raided and shut down because it's a gray industry. No one's, it's not regulated. All an employee has to do is make something up to get their employer raided. Um, so now the difference with, um, with legalization is if you're in a a black market company, because that's what they're called now, which many of the medical companies from last year that can't get licensing still operate. No one has, uh, the employers have no protections whatsoever. I mean, now it's like you could definitely go to prison if your employees say something. There's no protection on either end, though, because your employees most likely won't go to the police because they're doing something illegal as well. And now we're going back into, um, I know of a lot of people that have been getting robbed, leaving cannabis events. Um, They're called seshes, and they're, they're not regulated by the uh, by the BCC, who runs regulations in California, and a lot of people are getting robbed, and they're not going to call the cops because they're not doing something legal, anyways. But that means that crime and robberies and all of this is going to get worse because now there's no there's no backup, there's no protection. That's a side effect of legalization is you're turning a gray industry into a black industry. Wow, that's kind of scary. You're at the ground level experiencing this. If you take it up to 20,000 feet and look at this, are there things that you believe should be done? Are there ways to correct some of these um, imbalances? I mean, are there still a thousand dispensaries in L.A. that a majority that aren't complying? Oh, yeah. So the thing with L.A. is, well, first of all, L.A. has 98 cities in the county. Um, Within the 98 cities, there are 15, um, there are 90 neighborhood councils. Uh, Then there are 15 city council members, each one representing like 15 neighborhood council members. Um, So to get anything done. And not only that, then there's, you know, South, South LA or like Compton or areas like that, that have just as much say as Beverly Hills or, um, West LA. And these are all incredibly different neighborhoods. So to get anything done for the city of LA is practically impossible. And this is one thing that they've really been avoiding. And because of that, I believe they've only they've licensed less than 100 dispensaries in the city of L.A., much less than that. And what are they expecting all the thousands of dispensaries in L.A. to just shut down because they're not doing their job? No. The thing is, in L.A. is we've gone through this so many times that unless people truly feel that their profit or their freedom is in jeopardy, they will continue. It will continue. And then the licensed companies will start telling on the unlicensed companies because they're like, hey, man, we just paid millions of dollars to go through this process, not to have some rogue businesses over there not charging taxes and siphoning off our money that we should be earning. And then it just turns into this big mess, you know, but the thing is, is if you're not going to offer a path to being regulated for, you know, 
an, an amount of dispensaries that will actually serve the city. I mean, to have less than 100 in this city, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So as long as the councils are not doing their job, then yeah, these these illegal shops will continue to go and make a lot of money because they're not charging taxes. And I can tell you, I'm not paying taxes on cannabis. No, uh-uh. Like, and there's a lot of people like me because I'm just not down with the state really taking it out on everybody and being so against it until they can make money off of it. So, I'd Well, right. The last time I went to a dispensary, I, I think I paid $35 in taxes. Um, exactly. So on, uh, I'll be sober. A, yeah. Like literally, I will not, I will not even use it if that's what I have to go through. Like I, this is a moral principle thing for me. How do you see this playing out? I mean, there's not incentive to comply. There's a lot of disincentive to comply. Well, there's no. Not, there's not no. enforcement. So what happens? If you're, if you're a company who went through the nightmare of getting a license, you have every every bone in your body and reason that you live is to be compliant because you did not just go through that nightmare to like you know, play around. Um, and it's going to be hard because these are not California cannabis business owners were not business people last year. And I highly doubt that they're business people this year, but they need to become beyond business people. They need to become, you know, corporation people. They need to, I mean, it's a huge, a huge learning curve that's going on. And, um, I, I think that for these companies to, make it the illegal companies, they, they can't shut down because then they don't have any money and they can't operate because then they're breaking the law. I don't, I don't really know, um, what the solution is other than making all of these local governments regulate their industries instead of ignoring them. That's the only way. Well, you said something a minute ago about a pathway. You know, it's a, at least have a way to, to go from non-compliant to semi-compliant to compliant. I mean, I think we all agree things should be done the right way. Maybe the companies being compliant, they're do, they're trying to do things the right way. Is the law, are the taxes, do they have to be that high? How do you get it to a point where uh, everybody wants to comply? Well, that's what I'm saying. When it, For a pathway to compliance, you would have to regulate your industry in the first place. I mean, two-thirds mm -hmm. of California is refusing to allow any sort of commercial cannabis activity. Two-thirds. That does not mean that there's no cannabis industry. It just means that all of them are now criminals and they have no protections in operating and the state is still not getting any tax money and the fact that they are making the barriers to entry so high and it's so difficult to comply that's just killing off all of the mom and pop companies out there because it's nearly impossible to keep up even financially with the regulations for example um at first the california emergency regulations had said that cannabis packaging has to be childproof, the actual packaging. And then they said, no, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be childproof. You can just use a child safe. Oh, no, it's the opposite. They said, 
your packaging doesn't have to be child safe, but the exit bag at the dispensary has to be. Then they changed it and said, you do need to have each individual package of cannabis product be in a child-proof packaging. So all these companies spent tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars coming up with these if not buying an already created child safe packaging, some of them creating their own designs of like really cool, creative, you know, patent pending type of packaging, all to find out that after the those regulations came out, the state changed it again because they had received so many complaints. And now all of these packet or all of these companies have packaging that wasn't even necessary. It's these changes, these little changes that can kill companies that didn't start off with a ton of money. And that's most companies that are not backed by investors. And I think from the 20,000 square foot view, what I'm seeing is the barriers of entry are so high that it's killing off the California cannabis culture. And it's it's making it a breeding ground for capitalists with a lot of money. And most of them are coming from out of state because our state is a state that didn't put a in-state limit on uh, investors or people in the state. So anyone can invest and open a company in California. What I hear you saying is maybe the big players, Philip Morris or the conglomerates have an opening here because they do have the deep pockets and the resources. They have lobbyists who can change laws. I believe they are the ones behind it. I think that on the 11th hour of the regulations being published, before it happened, there was um, there was a limit on mega growth, any grow over 22,000 square feet. And the night before they published it, gov- the governor removed a um, he removed a section that prevented people from license stacking. And license stacking is when you have a really big property and then you get a license per every 10,000 feet. But altogether, you have a huge amount of a grow. He got rid of that protection, which was there to help the small to medium farmers be able to compete on the same level instead of having these huge corporations come in and just wipe them out. That protection was gone immediately. I have to wonder who did that? Like who's behind that? Uh, I don't think our regulations were created for the mom and pop growers. California is the fifth largest economy in the world. You've got to believe that there are major players behind the scenes impacting the regulations. And though California does go around and have a comment period every time they release regulations to get people's input, I still think that lobbyists and dark money has more power than the actual people being uh, subject to the regulations. Right. When something like that happens at the very last second and has a real outcome on the little guy. Yeah, that that's um, bullshit. If you look at Canada and the consolidation in Canada, that's California within five years. It's just going to be like four companies that have swallowed all of the rest of them. Wow. So sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about the business side of this and, and the bullshit apparent when you're at ground level and at 20,000 feet. There's also a cultural aspect to the bullshit around the stigma of cannabis based on 70 years of government propaganda when they told us that this is the devil's weed, it leads to ruin, it's a horrible thing that is going to kill you. So the bullshit around this is not limited to, to business. There's a, there's a cultural aspect to it as well. 
Oh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's bullshit all over. I, I make a joke that BS is literally in the word cannabis. It's just, <laughs> it's just a part of it. I love the plant. The science is awesome. That's not the bullshit, but it is the cultural beliefs. And when it comes to the prohibition, you know, in the 1930s and how it had an impact and how it still impacts today, if you look at the DEA, I mean, they just, I think they just changed spelling marijuana with like a J instead of an H. And I believe MPP sued the DEA for having 21 false claims on their website and actually got them removed off of the DEA's website. But there's still this Ainslinger, that's the guy's name that was ahead of... Um, the DEA or whatever back then, they still have this weird relationship with cannabis as if it's like this horrible criminal plant and you hear um, the attorney general, what's his name? Jeff Sessions. You hear Jeff Sessions. I mean, these guys are in power and unfortunately, I think they truly believe what they say. And the fact that we have a bunch of people that are still in that level, it's, it's, difficult to get them to change their mind until somebody in their family gets sick. I think that's generally the way people's minds change about cannabis is when a family member gets sick and then they use cannabis and then they're like, oh, it's not something that stoners that, you know, are stupid and lazy and eat lots of food do. I don't think it has the demon weed view anymore for the most part just um just a negative view right i think jeff sessions was on the record still is saying you know good people don't smoke marijuana yeah um, but but they and, drink alcohol and and smoke <laughs> cigarettes yeah. you know and take pharmaceuticals that's the other thing cannabis is not legal for many reasons but i think one of the main reasons is is it will knock out a bunch of industries it will take a ton of money from them i mean hemp and America, their hemp is part of our history. I mean, our um, the the sails of Christopher Columbus's ship were made from hemp. The Constitution was written on hemp. George Washington farmed hemp. The first American flag was made from hemp. This is not. Uh, a demon drug. This was building supplies, industrial uses, you know, fabric. Now we have hemp seed oil. So that's for nutritional supplements or for food and uh, biofuels. Then for cannabis with high in THC, knocks out pharmaceuticals, affects the alcohol industry, affects the tobacco industry. All of these industries have lobbyists and they're all incredibly intertwined with our government. And I think that they're probably part of the propaganda machine. You know, they're probably still whispering in the ear of politicians. You don't want to do this or this is bad or look at this. I think lobbyists kind of run our government. Unfortunately. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. Our audience is uh, baby boomers. When we in the 70s, we smoked joints and, and hit bongs and realized this wasn't the road to ruin. Yet the, the laws persisted for another 30 or 40 years. While the science was being manifest, you know, the endocannabinoid system was discovered 
And there was some scientific evidence that we have receptors. We have CBD1 and CBD2 receptors, and it reduces inflammation. It does all these things, but it takes so long for that word to get out and then for laws to change and for the culture to change and to understand that this is not a substance that should be criminal. I, you That makes me think of something. The problem with the scientific, the medical aspect is the endocannabinoid system isn't even taught in medical school. There are still doctors that do believe that cannabis is the demon weed. Um, I had a psychiatrist when I was like 21, which is when I got into the industry. And for seven years, I brought him all kinds of reports and studies and psychiatrists basically just give people drugs. That's that's what they do. They're who the psychologist sends you to to give you medications. So they're especially against cannabis for the most part because they're like, oh, well, I've seen people go crazy and whatever. But it's like, yeah, because they probably had mental issues in the first place. But that's beside the point. It took me seven years until he actually started writing cannabis doctor recommendations for some of his patients. And I think that if I can turn a psychiatrist into a doctor that will give a cannabis prescription, it's not completely impossible to teach doctors, but doctors have to be willing to see it as a legitimate science. I mean, if a doctor doesn't know about the endocannabinoid system, you have a very difficult argument on your hand. Uh, with the doctor, you know, absolutely. The fact that it's still not taught kind of blows my mind. Like, what century are we in that we don't recognize this? This has been proven, and it's continuously proven in all of these different studies. And I mean, you mentioned the CB1, CB2 receptor. There are lots of other receptors that we're finding out about, and there are more cannabinoids than we knew about. And then we have terpenes and all these other chemicals that we're still figuring out. I think it's how can we even expect medical professionals or anyone really to be on top of it? And that's the other thing. I teach terpene classes. And once people learn about terpenes, it makes everything more confusing. (laughs) So that's another problem is we have a new science that we're still finding the answers to. It's hard to convince others when the science is so young and changing. It's not absolute. It's not black and white. We've talked about this on other shows where people have different reactions to different strains. And my genetics aren't the same as your genetics. Even within a strain, there might be variations. So it's a very complex, personalized medicine. And, and it, if you're going to really use it as a medicine, you have to take some responsibility for discovering on your own, maybe in conjunction with a enlightened medical professional, what's going to work for you. But I I hear you. I mean, I've had conversations with oncologists and, you know, is it okay to take CBD? And the guy, he's, he's a doctor and he says, well, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it increases your appetite. It helps you sleep. Uh, it, it, all the things that THC does, he, he didn't even know about CBD. You know, he, in his, yeah, yeah. There's just a huge lack of knowledge, and I don't know if there's a willingness to to learn it either. I mean, like you say, if if pharmaceutical companies are out there pushing their products and giving away free samples, you know, is a doctor really going to recommend cannabis Un- until the cannabis model becomes that, and you have a sales rep showing up with a bunch of bud and handing it out? 
Yeah, but see, that's never going to happen. So this is the biggest problem with cannabis is um, I went to the cannabis science convention a couple months ago, and there's a doctor from Israel, Dr. Didi Mieri. I always mess his name up, but that's that's close enough. And he runs the Oncology Cannabis Center or something like that in Israel. And I didn't know this, but in Israel, they only have like 16 growers for the entire country. And everything they grow goes through this main system so that the country can keep track of exactly what strains are being used by what patients to what effects and to what degrees. And he was talking about these uh, autistic children that were taking a specific strain that just had these amazing results, but the grower ran out of that strain. So he said, here's another strain that has the same cannabinoid profile for the most part. Um, let's put them on this until I have more. And the kids had really bad reactions, um, getting violent, hurting themselves or others. And he was talking about the fact that there's over 144 cannabinoids, over 200 terpenes in cannabis. We will never be able to have a solid, um, we'll never be able to prescribe cannabis if we don't figure out specifically what is doing what in the person. And like you said, everyone has different chemistry, but when we're working with over 300 plus molecules, it, it's not it's not possible for people to just smoke a specific bud and get the same effect every time when even buds grown on the same plant can have different amounts of terpenes or different amounts of cannabinoids uh, from a different stem. So I think the key is, unfortunately, is we have to figure out, and what Dr. Miri was saying, we have to figure out the three to four molecules that are doing something. But we cannot be using just the plant for people in a hospital or something. It's going to have to come in a pharmaceutical form. And then we will have pharmaceutical companies in the cannabis industry, which is already happening. Um, GW Pharmaceutical with Epidiolex or um, Insys Therapeutics. Here's another example they created the fentanyl patch, I believe. It's the fentanyl patch. And they're in Arizona. Arizona had recreational cannabis on their ballot last year. And Insys Therapeutics spent $500,000 in a campaign against legalization. And then news comes out after legalization failed in Arizona that Insys Therapeutics had just gotten their CBD drug approved by the DEA. So obviously it's not in their best interest to have uh, cannabis legalized before they can control it. And I think that's when we're going to see it is when pharmaceutical countries have a chokehold on the industry when it gets to schedule two. Right. Wow. Oh, and the other thing um, for pharmaceuticals, generally people have to try it. I mean, like antidepressants, you try different meds until you figure out which one works. So it's not that strange that you would have to do that with cannabis. But fortunately with cannabis, you only have to deal with side effects for a day, two at the very most uh, versus antidepressants, which you have to take for at least two weeks. And then you have actual withdrawal chemical issues going on with your brain. It's 
just kind of part of figuring out what works for you. Luckily, it's pretty benign. It's two different paradigms. There's this sort of the Western medicine foundation of you isolate this molecule in the laboratory and then you know exactly the effect it's going to have. I mean, again, that, that'll probably depend on someone's genetics, but with cannabis, you'd have to like decode the genome and understand that there's 142 cannabinoids and then there's 200 terpenes and all those combinations are uh, astronomical. <laughs> and, and then, you know, how are all those different combinations going? How am I going to react to them? And how are you going to react to them? So yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, right? I mean, it's, it's astoundingly complex. Yeah. The more you know, <laughs> yeah. the less you know. But it's an organic medicine and it's never killed anybody, right? I mean, hey, why are we okay with taking ibuprofen, which we know has serious side effects on our kidneys and our livers? Why we've been programmed to take a pill for practically everything. I don't know why it's so difficult for us to take a plant. You know, if you take ginkgo biloba, like who knows if you're even actually taking it because the nutritional supplement industry is not regulated. Um, so who knows what you're taking? But why is it easier for you to take that than a plant, especially like a literal plant, you know, people drink tea. Guess what? Tea has pesticides on it. Hate to tell you, but you're like steeping pesticide water. What's wrong with using cannabis? It's just a plant. Right. Something you can grow in your backyard, you know, not in a lab somewhere. There's a lot that we're not going to figure out today, but another astounding piece of bullshit is that the the U.S. government has a patent on CBD, right? Yeah. So what's up with that, right? <laughs> they patent six six three zero five zero seven. Yeah. They know it's in. It's in. Is that for the anti-inflammatory property? To be honest, I'm not. I am not well spoken on this patent. I just know of it and that the government has it. And to me, that's like, yeah, you guys know that it works medically. You have the patent. Why is it still a schedule one drug? Yeah. They had enough foresight to understand that it had value. So they tried to get a monopoly on it or at least grabbed it. I I don't know that they'd use it at all, but. Before prohibition, there was a ton of cannabis medicines. You know, you see the old pictures and they're like cannabis indica, C indica and like morph morphine type alcohol beverage um, tinctures or whatever back in the day before prohibition. So they know it has medical properties because it was used medically. Well, and then another aspect of it is CBD, which doesn't get you high, but it's being used for so many purposes. There's some bullshit there too, because there's so many companies just rushing products to market that it's hard to know what's any good at all. Some companies are publishing test results and then other companies will take a picture of those test results and put them up as if they're their own. So for the consumer, you have to be very careful to try and find a brand that you think is pure and good, right? Yeah, it's really tough. There are several aspects to the CBD industry that um, that mirror the THC industry pre-legalization where you just don't know. And there's a ton of people in there trying to make a bunch of money and nobody's regulating it and you get what you get. But when it comes to CBD, we're talking about a global commodity. We've got all these other countries, everybody's getting in on the CBD industry. And on LinkedIn alone, just 
people being like, hey, I'm looking for 10 million pounds of biomass or, you know, I need 50,000 kilos of CBD isolate or just these ridiculous amounts of of product that doesn't even exist and people trying to buy and sell it. And you know that it's just a lot of crap. Um, you might be getting CBD in from can or China or other places with less than savory manufacturing and and lab testing issues. And then there's CBD isolate versus a full spectrum CBD oil. And then there's the difference between hemp oil and CBD oil. And um, companies are now changing the labeling to instead of saying CBD oil, they're calling it hemp oil and then putting active milligrams instead of calling it CBD on the packaging so that they're not getting in trouble for selling CBD because they're trying to, to basically cover their ass. So it's really confusing to know what is what. I think the best way to bullshit detect on that is to contact the actual company and ask for a COA, which is a certificate of analysis, to that specific company. And if you get it through a distributor, see if they can get a third-party COA. Um, some distribution companies will do that like CBD marketplaces online will do third-party testing as well so that they're not selling you crap. Yeah, because it it's a bioaccumulator too, right? I mean, it, it sucks toxins out of the ground, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, but I don't know if, I mean, if CBD is a molecule and they use this to like suck up radiation out of the ground, wouldn't you notice the radiated molecules in the CBD? I don't know. I'm not sure. I guess whatever testing equipment you're using, you would have to have radiation samples in the library to to notice it anyways, I think. Um, but yeah, you, you don't know where it's coming from. And CBD isolate isn't always as effective for specific things as much as a full spectrum oil, which is uh, crude oil, basically, where they have all the cannabinoids and terpenes from the plant versus CBD isolate, which is just an isolated CBD molecule. So this is another area where, you know, if you we've talked about business and culture and we can swing into government. But is there a regulatory mechanism by which you could begin to protect consumers and penalize companies who are putting out bad product? Or do you just let the market solve the issue of bad product? So it seems to me like the government doesn't want to deal with it at all. So they're not. That doesn't mean that they won't in the future. But I think that it's almost like in L.A. It is blown up so much that I don't think the government could even freaking handle um, getting a rein in on CBD just yet. It seems like. Maybe they will, but right now there's all these rogue CBD companies that are doing whatever they want, just like in Los Angeles, make your money and then hopefully either get out before you get in trouble or get a good lawyer in case you do get in trouble, but just balls to the wall with your production. So I don't know. I don't see the, I don't see the government getting into this industry to take care of consumers. They just get into it to take money from consumers. 
And then regulations are like a part of it, but I don't think that they care about the quality as much as they do getting the taxes. Yeah. I mean, if it became a pharmaceutical model where it was tightly regulated, that's one thing. But I guess it's like any other supplement. I mean, you you see a statement on the bottle that says, you know, this hasn't been, these claims have not been verified or whatever. Exactly. It's exactly the same situation. It's a hands-off, you know, until you do something or you kill someone or something like that. I mean, if you, even the chemical industry, the cosmetics industry, none of these industries have any oversight from the government. I mean, the government... There was makeup back in the old days that used radium, which is that um, radioactive stuff that makes things glow, like <laughs> like watch faces or something. They would have yeah. like mascara or something until people's eyes started getting tumors or whatever. <laughs> oh, my God. Like the government doesn't – they're not proactive. They're reactive. That's just the way it is, you know? Right. Yeah, so it's it's a buyer beware world, and we all know that. So it's you know, if it's really really important to you, then take the initiative, spend the extra money, and get it tested yourself. There are also mm-hmm. websites out there. There's one I found. It's theblacklist.xyz, and it's for people to go on and post when they've been robbed or they've tested cartridges that came back with pesticides or whatever. It's the place where people warn each other about other things and other products. And it's really interesting to see how many lab test fails um, a lot of these cannabis companies get. So I think there needs to be more watchdog websites like that for consumers and for people in the industry. The blacklist XYZ? Yeah, dot XYZ, yeah. And is it cannabis focused only? Yeah, yeah. It's like um, turn in informants, thieves, uh, bad employers, bad medicine. It's for the bad people. And interesting. Yeah. It's, I mean, we don't really have any other way of regulating the black industry, the black market industry, you know? Yeah. You know, we've seen kind of the dark side of legalization. What's the bright side? What makes me excited is I, I realized that like, oh my God, we can actually make our, we can keep our culture. We just have to start growing ourselves or knowing people that grow or supporting people that grow. What I'm excited about as well is I'm starting to get more clients that are in the hemp industry. And I hear from like hemp veterans that are like, oh my God, there's so many thieves and crooks in the hemp industry. But I'm finding that it's almost a better quality of people that want to get into the hemp industry and want to create a product that helps people. It's not a product that's used for people to get intoxicated with. So it's almost um, a more wholesome cannabis a species maybe is a way to put it. So I'm, I'm excited about the future of hemp and the way that it's going to be a part of many industries. You know, it's not just for CBD. Obviously, CBD is a huge thing, but I mean, you can grow different variety or different cultivars of hemp and get different aspects. So there are some people that will focus just on the seed oil or whatever makes sense, but definitely CBD production. But even then, um, that's still 
I don't know. I think that's like a softer side of the cannabis industry because it's not the active drug. The growing factor. Um, do you recommend getting a clone? Do you grow from seed? What are your best practices for growing your own? Well, if you live somewhere where you could get a clone, clones are cool. Um, they're at least they've started. You know that they're female and. Generally, if you know a place to get a clone, you can get more information about growing. If you're in a place where you can't get clones, then grow by seed. The thing is, even if you get feminized seeds, generally they're female. I, I've heard of people that have gotten male plants out of feminized seeds. So I'm not really sure about that. But growing by seed is super exciting too, because when you sprout it and the little root comes out and then the first set of leaves, and it's a little bit more difficult depending on your growing situation. But if you can grow outdoors, then seed is pretty easy. So just find room on the balcony or in the backyard and uh, yeah, you yep. put a seed in some paper towels and get it wet and watch it for a few days and, and then put it in some soil yeah. and there you go. Exactly. Pop the seed and then put it in some soil and then water it. Not too much, but water it and watch it grow. Are you growing some right now? No, I don't have the right place for it. I was trying to grow in my windowsill, but um, that I ended up, I was trying, I thought I was growing an auto flower, which means that it will go into flowering despite the lighting. And that's really important because if you're growing regular cannabis, then you have to go from an 18 hour light schedule down to 12 hours dark, 12 hours light. And I don't have a place to put my plant with that lighting schedule, like in my bathroom or something that doesn't work out. So I had to give my plant to a friend so that he could flower her. But I think for the most part, growing outdoors is the best way. If you're going to grow indoors, you're going to need to put more time and money into it. And I don't have either of those right now. Yeah. You get into grow lights and all yeah, that stuff. I can't grow half-assed. So, I mean, when I was growing back in the day, I had a six by six foot tent and I had the exhaust and, and like everything set up. Um, it was actually super fun, but it can get really expensive. And I mean, if you're not going to sell it, then it's just an investment of money and time. I mean, you can't go on vacation or anything while it's growing either. Because it's almost guaranteed if you let someone else watch your plants, they're going to kill them. So <laughs> I don't know why that happens, but it does. Oh, sure. It's a real relationship you have with that plant. Um, That's true. They really need you. It's yeah. definitely, I mean, it's three months of your life. You can, you can take a break, <laughs> you know, it's totally worth it. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great recommendation. I'm, I'm going to have to do that. There's a company, by the way, called apotforpot.com. That's how I was growing. They're the ones who sell the, the it's like a little home kit that you can do in, indoor or outdoor. And you they give you a coupon to get a seed of an auto flower. And it makes it really easy to grow. That's a great recommendation. I'll look yeah. for that. Yeah. Kristen, where can we find you online? Uh, well, I have my own podcast called The Cannabis Detector, where I call out the bullshit in the cannabis industry. And some of the episodes I've done were 
all the different ways you can get sued by everyone in every way possible. Um, I came up with so many good ideas on how to sue people. It was interesting. And um, I did one about GW Pharma's Epidiolex and the clinical trials and some of the negative aspects of that. Um, then I have another Dash radio show that is available on iTunes under Purple Haze Radio called Storytime, where I invite people in the cannabis industry to come on and tell their funny, horrific, or crazy experiences in the cannabis industry because it's not all positive. Like, we all have these insane stories that it's kind of like war storying around a campfire type of thing. Um, and then I have my website is soiltothoil.com, all spelled out, no numbers. And um, my podcast is at cannabispod.com or on iTunes. Um, what else? Oh, and then I'm also on the radio in San Diego on 89.1 FM KNSJ at 7 p.m. on Friday evenings. That's pretty cool. You have a lot of uh, a lot of exposure and a lot of experience uh, podcasting. So yeah, it's fun. I mean, I just I can really bum people out, but I can also crack jokes and take the edge off. Hopefully, so it's not <laughs> like a super super negative thing. I just feel like someone has to tell this type of stuff to people, and and I have elected to do it. Um, oh, Instagram soil to the oil as well okay we'll look you up uh yeah obviously i mean injecting some reality into the conversation is very valuable in my opinion um most of us are blithely unaware of the realities of this industry legalization is not just a binary switch that gets pulled obviously there's all sorts of uh things going on parties jockeying talking to you it's obviously there's going to be a lot of growth in litigation you know if you wanted to really take advantage of this you'd become a lawyer and and that's exactly how i ended that episode was like hey if you're getting into the cannabis industry you should be a lawyer because that's where the money's at yeah a lot of conflicts and and uh, uh a lot of fights and well and also regulations never stop changing i mean just a couple weeks ago washington state decided to ban uh hard candies and candy in general and they didn't tell anybody including all the companies that make candies and then when the company is just like freaked out they repealed the ban but it's like you're never safe things will always change. California will come out with regulations and then give a 45-day comment period and then change regulations and then do a 45-day comment period. And it's like nonstop changing. So you cannot, I mean, it's just something you're always on your toes. If you're in the cannabis industry, you are obsessed with regulations or you will fail. Yeah. Basically. Well, people like you who are out there and watching this are going to help those of us who just want to be able to have access to a, a safe and effective medicine that, you know, maybe it takes some experimentation on our part, as we've discussed. But, you know, it is an alternative to ibuprofen, to opioids, to all kinds of things that do more harm. So that's that's why I got into it. It's this is about harm reduction and giving people an option to have a, a safe, effective organic medicine. 
And uh, there is something I saw that's like, look, we don't have an ibuprofen system in our body. We don't have a Tylenol system in our body, but we do have an endocannabinoid system in our body. So introducing cannabinoids to it is it's complementary science. It's not uh, some alien chemical. We create endogenous cannabinoids. We are already creating them. So it's even more about balancing out our system than bringing in a, an outside chemical to it. Yeah. And it goes back tens of thousands of years. Um, we have a, a relationship with it. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to our audience. We've got a lot out of this show, and uh, hopefully we can uh, maybe have you back in the future. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Let's Talk About Weed, the Cannaboomers podcast with Thomas J. For more on medicinal cannabis for baby boomers, visit us at cannaboomers.com.